Yes, here we are, everybody. Back at Wednesday night, so a warm welcome. We are back at it here as we continue on just working through God's Word, and we are beginning a new series here, as you know, in the book of Genesis. I'm excited, yeah. We got a couple of us excited. I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to doing this. Um, if you are here tonight and you are looking for a incredibly scholarly look through Genesis, like a Chuck Misler study, I would like to direct you to Chuck Misler and to his website. And uh, you can hear some great messages there. I don't know if you'll be getting it here uh, from me. We're going to do our best to uh, make sense of all this and, and just look at this here together and look to glean uh, from just God's word and just the great things that we're going to be um, seeing here in the book of Genesis. We have been doing a series, um, the Bible from 30,000 feet, the last time we were together on Wednesdays, where we were doing a real bird's eye view of um, the Bible, going through, essentially trying to take a book of the Bible a night. Uh, with Genesis, we did over two, two nights. So now we get to slow things down a little bit, take a little breather, enjoy the flight a little bit more and uh, just take some time. So I have no schedule on when we're going to be, you know, getting right through this here. We'll just be led of the Lord and, and just uh, enjoy going through Genesis. So hope you're there, Genesis chapter one. Um, now the book of Genesis is indeed uh, a book of beginnings. That's really what it's all about, what it, what it speaks of. The, in the Hebrew scriptures, the first book was called Bereshit, which means in the beginning. And that expression with which the first sentence begins, that's oftentimes how they would define or name a book, which is by the first sentence that was given. So in the beginning, right, Bereshit, God, Elohim. And so when the Septuagint writers began to uh, translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, um, they began to use this term genesios. And genesis is an anglicized version of the Greek word genesios, meaning a number of different things, including origin, history, or genealogy. That's where we get the word genesis from. This word appears throughout Genesis on, on a numerous of occasions where you'll see in, in Genesis 2.4 and chapter 5.1, for instance, uh, Genesis 2.4 speaks about the history, uh, the origin, and then in other places you'll see the genealogies being given. That's that term genes, genesis. It's the Hebrew um, toledot. And so some scholars even suggest that, that usage, anytime you see that word toledot, it, it's kind of a real key to understanding the whole structure of the book and giving different, different breakdowns. Now, the book is divided into two main parts. The primeval history, God and the world, chapters 1 to 11. And then you see the patriarchal history, God and Israel, chapters 12 to 50. So in that primeval, uh, primeval history, you're looking at four key events that are taking place. Creation, uh, the fall, the flood, and then the fallout, the Tower of Babel, where they are dispersed. But then in the patriarchal history, we're looking at four key people now as God begins to uh, zero in now on the nation of Israel. Four major people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So that takes up the remainder of the book, chapters 12 to 50. And as Genesis is the book of beginnings, we have now the beginning of many things in this book. We have, uh, what's interesting, there's a rule of, uh, of Bible interpretation that is called the, the rule of first mention. And that means when you see the first mention of a specific thing, 
it typically bears some real importance and understanding for us when it is used elsewhere in the scripture. So whenever you come across something that's kind of the first mention of it, usually kind of perk up and go, oh, what is the context we're looking at? Well, Genesis provides the first mention of many things. As we'll see in Genesis, we'll see uh, the beginning of creation, uh, the beginning of the world, the first man, first marriage and family. You'll see the beginning of sin, sadly, death, sacrifice, government, redemption are all listed in Genesis as the beginning of these things. But notice, you don't see any mention of the beginning of God. We don't have an origin of God because God is eternal. He's outside of time, and so he has no beginning and no end. He is self-existing, and he is self-sufficient. So when the Bible begins here, we just have, in the beginning, God. There's no place where anybody's looking to try to prove the beginning or the origin or the creation of God. He's just always existed. It's a matter of fact, one that nobody felt inclined to have to try to explain away. It just was a fact. In the beginning, God, God's always been. There's, there, there's no beginning with God. There was nothing before. God was the beginning of all things, you see. Now, Looking at Genesis, we gotta ask again, as we like to do when we look at a new series in a book, is who wrote the book of, of Genesis? Well, we know Moses is the, the author of the book of Genesis. He wrote the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and, and Moses wrote all of these books of the Bible. Now, who is the audience that Moses is writing to? Anybody wanna take a guess at that? Pardon me? The Jews, yeah. How else would you break that down? Who's, who's his audience when he's writing this? And, and Anybody? Nation of Israel, right? And, and where was the nation of Israel at the time when Moses is most likely putting this together, writing it? In the wilderness, yeah. They're wandering through the wilderness. And so Moses here is directing the children of Israel. And I'll think about that for a moment here because they've been living now. They've come out of where? Egypt, right? They've been living in a land that is filled with various gods, right? They're getting ready to enter into a land who had their own view of gods and various gods. That's the land of Canaan. So Moses is seeking to point out clearly now the one true God. This is the God that has made everything. Up until now, the nation of Israel, they've been experiencing people or witnessing people that are, are worshiping creation. Cre worshiping various gods that have been made. They're, they're worshiping creation. And now Moses is gonna come in and say, listen, let me tell you about the one true God who is the creator of all, where we're not called to worship creation, we're called and invited in to worship the creator now and to have personal relationship with him. This would have been something that would have blown the mind of his audience now as they begun to see kind of the, the, the fall of man and how people have, have gravitated to and fall into this worship of idolatry, where again, a relationship with the God, all they were seeking to do was appease the gods, keep the gods kind of away from them. And now Moses is, is, is revealing to them how they can have a relationship with their creator and worship not the creation, but worship the creator now. That's pretty exciting stuff. So look at verse one here. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering 
over the face of the waters. Now, if you can accept those first four words of the Bible, those first four words of Genesis, then you're going to have no problem accepting anything else that you see in God's word. In the beginning, God. That's it. He's the beginning of all things. He's the originator, the, the creator. It all rests and stops in the Lord. Yet today, we see Genesis, sadly, as being one of the most attacked books of the Bible. And that often coming even from within the church. Some today have begun to look at the book of Genesis as, as just a, a poetic book, meaning, well, the way that it's written, you know, it's kind of just filled with allegory. And so we don't really take it from a, a literal stance. They're, they're little stories that are meant to represent a, a bigger kind of message or picture. That's what, what some are promoting today from within the church. And so taking a literal view of the book of Genesis will cause you to be scoffed at. Well, I say let the scoffing come because I take the book of Genesis very literally. I see that God created the heaven and the earth in six literal days. That God created a literal Adam and Eve and that they weren't just representative of the human race here, right? I believe that there was a global flood and that Noah literally took two of every kind of animal on the ark, seven of the clean ones, but we'll get to that later here. But you get the idea. These first 11 chapters of Genesis have come under great debate in recent times as not being literal, as saying, well, it's just kind of representing just sort of a, a, a arching kind of story of God that these are just kind of allegorical pictures here to give us sort of a, a broader message of things. And it doesn't surprise me because if you can take away those first 11 chapters of Genesis, then you just cause the, the whole foundation to crumble when nothing else can stand on it. Everything else just falls apart. And the enemy knows what he's doing. I just didn't think that I'd see Christians and church leaders in my day follow along and be so gullible in that. And yet that's what we see, sadly. And then you have those that seek to try to help God out a little bit by promoting things like theistic evolution. Well, we'll say that God, you know, kind of started things, but he didn't really wasn't really active in continuing it on. That's what some people will say with theistic evolution. They'll say that God kind of started things going, but then he left creation to take over and do what it was created to do to bring life out of non-living material. Absolute rubbish. And yet that's what's being taught in often places. All, all these different ideas to try and explain away God or at the least diminish God of his sovereign power. And more and more Christians are taking this stance. Listen, there's a, a fight for the authority of scriptures here, and it begins at Genesis, the book of beginnings. And we need to hold strongly to the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's word. We're called to accept God and his word by faith, right? Hebrews 11, verse three and six says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Goes on to verse six to say, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
It's faith, my friends, that we need. And, and you will be countered by voices in the world to say, oh, come on, that's a real stretch here to believe that God created everything, that what we read in the Bible, a global flood, and from the flood, we have animals that are now all over the world. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't register, doesn't compute, that can't, that can't be. Well, it can't be if you've denied right from the beginning in the beginning God. Because if you take in the beginning God, God is self-sufficient, self-existing, that he is all-powerful, then nothing else is going to be a problem for you. Basically, we have at work today two worldviews. Now, there's a lot of different ideas, no doubt, but I think it can all be boiled down into basic two worldviews. You have a worldview that says that we came about by cosmic accident, right? A chance collision of right chemicals, particles, and molecules. Molecules. Then, then over billions of years, and the right, you know, combustible charge, life emerged. Basically, we're taught, as someone put it well, from the goo to you by way of the zoo. That's what we're taught, right? Start off by just some kind of like, you know, soup thing that eventually created some life and eventually got to you, you know, a little bit of stuff going on in the middle there, right? Monkeys and then into... Man, I mean, if we came from monkeys, how come there's still monkeys around? That's what I'd like to know. I don't know. Maybe there's a simple answer to that, but I don't get it. But so that's a, that's a, a popular worldview that people will say, evolution, right? That this is how we all came about. The other worldview says, in the biblical worldview, that we have a creator. With all the intricate design that we see around us, there has to be a designer. That designer, you see, is God who created us with purpose and blessing and has invited us in to live in fellowship with him. Now that seems very obvious to those of us that read and believe what God says in his word, but, but scientists are, are quick, or not so quick, to, to receive that, right? In fact, they bring their own prejudices into the reasoning. Listen to what Andy McIntosh said. He wrote in his book, I don't have the name of the book here, um, but he wrote this, no scientist is entirely objective. We're always governed by our assumptions. If a scientist does not believe in God, then his starting point of atheism will be bound to affect his judgment as he looks at the world around him. If his mind is closed to the possibility of a designer, his own assumption will force him to adopt what too many will seem an unlikely explanation for what he observes. We should not be surprised to find arguments being used which stretch the imagination and are based on little concrete evidence since the last thing that the natural man will wish to admit is design. Listen, he goes on to say this. No amount of evidence will necessarily change a person's mind if he is de determined to exclude the possibility of God's existence. The Bible refers to the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14.1. And to those who did not like to retain God in their knowledge, Romans 1.28, or even the possibility of God. Few people standing at the end of runway 27 left at Heathrow and watching a large Boeing airliner make the final adjustments before landing could seriously question the planned thousands of man hours of purposeful design that went into making such a craft. Yet, Equally impressive is the dive, often with far greater precision, of any of the birds we see around us. Mechanically, the flexibility of the ladder is much greater. Yet, if you say birds are designed, you are regarded as unscientific. Isn't that true that you could take an atheist, you could take an, an evolutionist and say, well, look at this great plane here coming in. 
Isn't that just amazing how all those parts just randomly assembled themselves together in the, you know, what do you call those places that hold the planes? Hangar. Thank you. My goodness. Genesis on my brain here, and I can't even think of hangar. And so all those parts just randomly assemble themselves together and put this plane together, and now this is fine. This is amazing. Nobody would believe in a million years, right? They say, no, that's got to have had somebody that put that together. And yet when you look at the more intricate designs of even just a bird, they'll be quick to say, oh, no, no, no. That's not design. That's just by random chance. See, they, they completely contradict themselves over these things. Isaac Newton, who was a creation scientist, once made a scale model of the universe. A colleague of his was impressed and asked Newton who made the model. Newton, who had a, evidently had a, a keen sense of evangelical humor, <laughs> replied that no one made the model. As you can imagine, his colleague would not accept the answer. The design required a designer and a builder. Finally, Newton challenged him. If so simply a model as this requires an intelligent designer and builder, how could he believe that the infinitely more wonderful and complex universe that that was just a mere model of could be a product of random chance? Right? I mean, how quick people will be to say, there's no way this was just brought together by nothing or that it didn't have a designer. So uh, people argue that all the time. And yet when it comes to the even greater things of design, people will be quick to dismiss that. Simply so they can deny God, remove God out of the picture. So listen, we take Genesis 1-1 as it stands. God created the heavens and the earth. Makes perfect sense to me. That above all else seems the most reasonable. Interestingly, evolutionists will say that creationists have to rely on faith, right? Whereas their theory is taught as fact, solid. Can I just say that the theory of evolution is completely a faith-based theory itself? I'm okay with saying my belief system is one of faith, I would just appreciate it if evolutionists could also come alongside and agree that their system of, or, or theory is a faith-based system as well. See, we're all trying to interpret the things around us and find what makes sense. As we just saw in these accounts of the plane or that model of the universe, ev evolutionists will see obviously that there's a creator in inanimate objects and yet will try and explain away the more complex evidence of intelligent design seen in life. And that doesn't make sense, does it? There's no science that backs it up. Nothing can be replicated or demonstrated in science to, to show what God did in creation, but we have the evidence of design and creation all around us. It takes a lot of faith to dismiss that and believe in something without evidence. We see it all around us. You can take anybody out on the street and say, hey, look at that building. It's an amazing how that just assembled itself. And people will be, what are you talking about? You're crazy. They know there's a designer behind what we see. And yet, all we have to do is look around us at the, the beauty, the wonder, the amazement, the intricacies of the world, the design that's built into everything and see, oh, there's definitely a designer to it all. Evolutionists will often even have to violate various scientific laws just to hold to their theory. 
which they say is all about science anyways, and yet they will have to violate certain scientific laws just to hold to their theories. First of all, you got the law of cause and effect, causality, where they, they, scientists agree, for every effect, there's a definite cause, right? Every effect, there's a definite cause. Evolution violates this rule by saying that all life, which is the effect, came from matter, but where did that matter come from? That's the cause that we're missing in their theory. Oh, well, that life came from this thing and it came from that. And, and you, you take them all the way back, they'll say, well, where'd that life come from? Where'd that beginning point come from? Well, we don't know. We're not sure. We don't know. So guess what? They've got an effect without the cause. They make an exception on that scientific rule. And we know the cause is who? God, he's the great cause of it all. And the effect is this incredible universe, his creation, the world we live in. Well, the second scientific rule they love to kind of violate is the second law of thermodynamics, where all matter is in a constant state of deterioration, right? Things don't go from disorder to order on its own, Right? You tell your children, can you please make your room? They might make the room, but you know, it quickly goes from order to disorder, right? Never does that room seem to go from disorder to order on its own, right? Unless there's a little bit of help behind it here. Matter, you see, matter does not get better. That's the, the second law of thermodynamics, Yet evolutionists claim that matter sprung into existence with no cause billions of years ago and yet is still evolving in intelligence. It's that things are getting better is what they'll say. And yet that violates the second law of thermodynamics. To uphold the evolution lie means you have to go, to, go against reason and, and science, essentially, it should be obvious, shouldn't it, that, that faith in God's revelation is preferable to faith in man's own reasoning, and yet the evolutionists continue on in their ways simply to deny the existence of God. Professor D.M. Watson, D.M.S. Watson, said, creation will present a parallel to the theory of evolution, a theory universally accepted, not because it can be proven by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative special creation is clearly incredible. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, listen, this theory of evolution cannot be proven by logically coherent evidence to be true, but only because the alternative is one that we don't like, and that is that of creation. Sir Julian Huxley said, I suppose the reason we leaped at the theory of evolution was because the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores. Look at what Romans 1.28 says. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Do you see where evolution comes in and destroys this very reality and truth that God has for us, that he desires to bring life, that he's not looking to come in and rob us of anything, but to, to bless us. And it's evolution that leaves people without an answer. It's evolution that leaves people with an emptiness, wondering, what is the point of it all? Well, Genesis reveals for us what the point of it all is. The evolutionists 
We'll say the universe and all its order sprang out of disorder. Yet uh, out of the other side of their mouth, they will say that order is a sign of intelligence. Carl Sagan petitioned the federal government for a grant to search for life in the cosmos. He decided that he was going to use a super sensitive instrument that would pick up radio waves in the universe. What he was looking for was patterns or order. If he was able to find order, then he would hypothesize that, that there was intelligence. Yeah, he's right. But we don't need instruments pointing up in the universe to try and pick up unseen clues. We just need to look around. Isn't there evidence of order and intelligent design all around us? See, we have so much proof of the existence of God, and all we have to do is just look around us. Romans 1, verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Psalm 33, verse 6 to 9 by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays at the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That's the, the God that we serve here. The creator of it all. Well, listen, getting back to our text here. In the beginning, God. The cause of it all. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim. It's a plural form. When it refers to the one true God, the singular verb is normally used as here. The plural form indicates majesty. The name stresses God's sovereignty and incomparability. He is the God of gods. So, incredibly, right here, verse one, we have a reference, evidence of the Trinity right here in the beginning. One God revealed in three persons. Herbert Spencer once said that everything in the universe that can be knowable could be placed into one of five categories. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Well, you know what? If he just read the Bible, just the first few verses here, he would have seen that that's exactly what is presented for us right here in the first verse. We have time in the beginning. We have that force, God. We have action that he created. We have space, the heavens, and we have matter, the earth. Hey guys, the Bible has it all covered, doesn't it? Isn't that good? Now, between verses one and two, that's <laughs> where we get into a little bit of fun. As some people see a bit of a, a difficulty between verses one and two. Many have seen a transition that reveals a bit of a change. See, the word, when it says that the earth was below form, that's a word that can also mean became. And some people interpret that verse to say that the earth became formless and void. And so different theories have been brought up to try to explain away, well, what happened? There seems to be a change that God, verse one, it seems to have created everything. And, and verse one, many believe is just kind of really that, that summary verse. And then, you know, the six days of creation begin to kind of fill it all in. But some people go, well, was there something that changed now between verse one and verse two? And so different theories have, have kind of come in to sort of explain this away, such as the gap theory, right? That's where people believe 
there's a gap that took place of time between verses one and two, which, which saw some type of event take place which caused the earth to be plummeted into chaos and upheaval. When they look at these words, that there was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep, they're looking at this scene of chaos and they go, there's something that must have happened from verse one when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth that, that changed things to some degree. So they believe that there's this gap there where perhaps some event took place and this time period unfolded where some will... will believe that perhaps this is when Lucifer rebelled, fell out of heaven and came in and kind of corrupted the earth. And then, and then God is seeking to do almost like a recreation now after. That's what the gap theory will hypothesize. Then there's the day-age theory. That theory states that the days of creation actually were not literal 24-hour days, but rather long geological ages of time. That's how some people will explain an old earth and how dinosaurs lived millions of years before man. Now listen, I gotta say, uh, I, I grew up in the church and I grew up, you know, believing, yeah, God created the heavens and the earth. But then I was, I was inundated with all this kind of, uh, of teaching, you know, millions and millions of years ago, you just heard it all the time, right? Millions and millions of years ago, when dinosaurs roamed the land, Right? And, and, and so as a child, I'm sitting here going, well, I mean, God created Adam and Eve, but then how did the dinosaurs get there? And when did the dinosaurs live? And, and were there dinosaurs when Adam and Eve were living? And I had all these kind of struggles and, and, and questions, and I just didn't see this reconciling of these things. And, I, and, and nobody really ever explained it to me. I never really saw this being taught in church. I mean, it could have been... I you know, only picked up about 10% of stuff that was taught in church as a kid, right? So who knows if it was taught and I just was, not, you know, seeping on the floor or something, I don't know. But, but so when I began to read about a young earth, and it kind of blew my mind, and it just made sense. See, I, I, I believe that we're dealing with literal 24-hour days here, not not long geological periods of time, that the earth was created even about 6,000 plus years ago. Now, a lot of people love to give age to the earth to account for the fossil record. But can I say that there was no fossils until after Adam and Eve were created? See, look what the Bible says. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through man... Um, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 to 22 says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So we have this idea that I think a lot of Christians would say, oh yeah, dinosaurs roamed the earth millions of years ago. And then God created, you know, Adam and Eve. Then, then the creation kind of unfolded. The dinosaurs were wiped out long before man. And, and they'll look at, you know, the fossil record. The kind of, so look at this. But do you see what the Bible is saying? The Bible is saying that there was no death until sin came into the world. When did sin come into the world? Genesis chapter three, at the fall. In other words, there were no fossils until after Genesis chapter three. God created all these things together. The fossil record can be best explained by a global flood. So going back to that potential gap in verses one and two, 
I don't believe there's any need to put a gap there. We don't need to translate that word was as that it became as gap theorists do. Reading it in context, we just simply see that the word that God, that the world that God created in verse one was yet formless and void. He's got it set and now he's going to begin to do his work. That Hebrew term used here, tohu, without form and bohu. Tohu and bohu, great Hebrew words, right? Without form and void, they simply describe material substance lacking boundary, order, and definition. But you see, God is about to take care of this in these six days of creation. The first three days will take care of the formless part when God gives form and order to his creation. The last three days of creation are going to be where he takes care of the void part when God fills creation and gives it definition. That's what we're going to see now in these six days of creation. Now, the status of things is kind of odd in verse 2. It says we've got darkness over the face of the deep. Now, in the Jewish mind, that was not comforting stuff right there. Many look at verse 2 as that world that is in chaos. The Jews looked at the seas as a place of, of chaos. So we're seeing that the, there's waters there, deepness. And this imagery in verse two can be unsettling for some, but I, I love the picture that it's providing for us, that the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. See, God is taking that which is dark and lacking order and is about to bring life and substance to it. I think it's just like foreshadowing this great story and theme of redemption that we're gonna see through the Bible where we see the work of the spirit at work in the world looking to take hurting, broken lives that are void and breathe life into them, making them new. It's what God did at creation. It's what his heart is for this world today. Aren't you glad for that? We were all those broken, formless, void lives and praise the Lord that his spirit was sent out in the world to hover and call us to the Lord by which when we receive him, we become new creations. We become brand new. We have life now in and through Jesus. Amen to that, right? Well, verse three, here we are. How are we doing for time? Okay. Did tell you that we're not doing 30,000 feet, right? All right, we're doing like, we're just, we're just walking through the park here. We're like off the plane and now we're just... We're just doing a slow troll, stroll, slow stroll with trolls. Okay, that's not cool, no. Here's verse three, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So here's day one of creation. We've got Light separated from darkness. The very first step in going from chaos to order is to simply shed the light. The first recorded words of God in his word is, let there be light. Each of the days of creation will begin with God speaking. But how important is it those first words, let there be light? After all, God is a God of light. It tells us in 1 John 1, 15, it says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I love that because darkness cannot ever dispel light, but light will dispel darkness. 
Paul used this idea of, of light to reveal the way that God moves in our lives when he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, as the light and the darkness is divided, God is establishing these days. That's the beginning of time. And like I said, I believe we're dealing with 24, uh, literal 24-hour days. Now, the word for day in Hebrew is the word yom. And it's used over 2,000 times in the Bible. Only about 65, uh, 65 of those terms of yom is referring to a period of time other than a normal 24-hour period. So, Anytime you say the word yom, it's typically speaking of a 24-hour period, as I believe it is being used of in that way here in creation. Well, verse 6, we see day 2 of creation. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, So the evening and the morning were the second day. So here's day two. Now this is a very interesting concept. We know that waters were covering the earth as we read in verse two. And now he makes a distinction and a division between these waters. So God creates a firmament or this expanse which caused the waters to be uh, formed below in the oceans and the waters to be formed above up in the sky or in the atmosphere. That firmament was called heaven. Not speaking of, of heaven where God, uh, where God dwells, we see in the Bible a reference to, you know, first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. The, the first heaven is being, you know, the sky above us. Second heaven is being uh, into space, you know, the, the celestial sky. The third heaven refers to God's dwelling place. And so God is, is, is making this division now. He's holding water up in the sky, there's water now below, and there's the, the atmosphere that's kind of keeping that all sort of intact. It's believed that with this kind of effect here now, there was no rain that came on the earth until the flood. So when God is calling Noah to build an ark, I'm gonna flood the world, they're all looking at this going, what are you talking about? We don't, we have no concept of a flood. I mean, we don't even have rain coming. That's the first time that that rain came. So God put this incredible firmament up there to to kind of hold these waters there and and separate, bring division. Chuck Smith, Smith said this, God's whole system is so marvelous. For instance, the rain cycle or the water cycle. Think of the engineering processes that God figured out in creating, first of all, the gases that make the water. Both hydrogen and oxygen are lighter gases than our atmosphere, which is 79 parts of nitrogen and 20 parts of oxygen and one part made up of other gases such as neon, freon, etc. It's basically a nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere. Oxygen and hydrogen in their pure forms are lighter than the atmosphere itself. As the sun hits the ocean, water evaporates into the gases, hydrogen, oxygen, then it's carried by the clouds and the winds down from the north or across the Pacific. As they move inland, they cool and begin to drop their water on the land, creating the snow in the mountains. The snow is stored in the mountains and in the summer it begins to melt and run into the streams, bringing us fresh waters. They flow back to the sea. Then the whole cycle begins again. A marvel of God's engineering that God designed by creating the balance of the earth and the sea to two-thirds water and one-third earth. 
you'd be living in a marshland if there was more water and less land. And if it were reversed and, and with more land and less water service, then you'd be living in a vast arid desert. The land would be uninhabitable. As science would declare, the whole balance or design of God is just a marvelous, fortuitous occurrence of accidental circumstances. And that made the whole thing possible. So it's interesting to see just, you know, how God put all these things in emotion. I mean, the things that, man, I, I barely comprehend, that I take for granted, and yet God in his creation has said, man, you, you, you wouldn't believe the intricacies of all these things and how they are just kind of working and flowing together. I mean, uh, like I said, I take a lot of things for granted. And when you begin to look in it, you realize, man, God, just how, how incredibly wise and thoughtful you were in all of these things. God put it all together. And then in verse nine, we see day three of creation. It says in verse nine, then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so, verse 12, and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Day three of creation was about establishing dry land and bringing forth vegetation there upon that land. That vegetation sprang forth with seed in it as to keep this cycle of reproduction alive. I mean, it just amazes me to see the fruitfulness of God's creation, how all these, these plants and, and vegetables just keep reproducing according to its kind. God has, has put all, all that into effect. Listen, I'm not much of a farmer, but uh, we've been having some fun at our place, you know, planting things, uh, you know, dealing with different vegetation that's growing, a lot of it not at our approval, but I mean, just a lot of things that are growing and just how it continues to just reproduce and spread just so easy. And I think, I mean, we, we planted a, a garden uh, this year. And by we, you know, I mean, my wife did, but she planted a, a garden and it's just so incredible to think just a little seed you put in the ground and, and just the, the bounty that, that grows from that one seed, you know? We've got the, the peas growing, just uh, multiplying and the beans. And then you take those, those pods down afterwards. They've been sitting there and you dry them out and all of a sudden you got now all these seeds more so now to plant. They're gonna reproduce malt. I'm just going, God. I mean, again, the things I, I, I kind of take for granted and now I see it in operation in my own home and I'm like going, this is so cool. God, you just, you thought of it all and you put it all into motion and all into play. All according to its kind. And guess what? I, I've never seen a plant produce something outside of itself. In other words, if I plant a, a, a pea seed, I'm not gonna see carrots grow out of that, right? It's all according to its kind, as God is saying right here. It's all according to its kind in verse 11 and, and elsewhere. It's funny how, how evolution just doesn't quite reveal itself in the things around us. We never see anything coming from one kind to another. And so God says, he looks at it all, and he says, this is good. 
It was good. He repeats that over and over in these days of creation. It was good. Because as the earth begins to become inhabitable and food is now available, God is really recognizing this is good. Why? Because his goal is providing a place for us to dwell, inhabit, and have dominion over. Look at verse 14. Then God said, here's day four of creation. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now notice what we're seeing here. These first three days of creation, right? We see him separating the light from the darkness, so there be light day and night. Day two, the atmosphere separating the waters. Day three, dry land and plants. In creation here, those first three days, we see God bringing form to that which is formless. Remember, that, that's very key from verse two, that the earth was without form and void. So those first three days of creation, he's bringing form to that which is formless. But now in the next three days of creation, he's... He's bringing life to that which was void. There's no, no life yet aside from the vegetation, but, but notice what we see because now these next days of creation, these next few days all correlate. Day four correlates with day one. Day five correlates with day two. Day six correlates with day three because what happens in day one? Let there be day and night. Let there be light. And now in day four, God says, well, what's that light gonna look like? We're gonna put sun, moon, and stars up. That are gonna be lights. In day two, he says, let there be a separation between the waters in the sky and the waters on the land. What does he do in day five? He says, let there be inhabitants up in the sky and let there be inhabitants in the sea. So he creates birds, he creates flying creatures and he creates creatures in the sea on day five to fill that which he brought form to in day two. And in day six, he fills now again the dry land by bringing land animals and you and I into being. Isn't that incredible what God does here in his creation? God is all about taking that which is formless and void and bringing life to it. That's, that's the whole MO of God. I wanna fill you. I wanna complete you. I wanna make you whole. That's what God is doing with us and that's what he does in creation. I think that's so exciting. You guys kind of a little, little bit excited? A little bit? Kind of cool? Tough crowd here. Okay, thank you. Coming along. So, on day one, he established light and darkness. Day and night, now he fills the day and night with the sun, moon, and stars. He announced light in day one, and now he provides objects of light that were for various purposes. It says there that they were to distinguish day and night. They provided signs. They distinguished the seasons. They illuminated the earth. These are all what, what we read there in those verses 14 and 19. All had a purpose for these, these lights that he gave. Creationists have proposed several solutions to the problem of how light from stars that are millions of light years away 
could get to Adam if the universe was only days old, right? Uh, maybe you've heard that kind of argument. How did that happen? I mean, we look at the start. I think the best explanation, is, as Constable says here, is the appearance of age. See, as God created humans, plants, and animals fully formed, so he created the light from distant stars already visible on the earth. See, that's kind of an argument that people love to give. Well, I mean, I believe in old, look at, we can do some dating of things and go, look at the earth is, is way older than just, you know, what the Bible record seems to indicate, 6,000 years, it's gotta be way older. That's why, again, people kind of bring up with these different theories. But do you, do you see that God is able to create things with age? If he created Adam, he didn't, from what I read, we don't see Adam appearing on the scene in diapers and just, you know, like, trying to make too much of a mess of things. And, and, and a baby that's grubby, he's, he's a man, fully functional. He's, he's, he's created with age to him, as God could have done with all of the earth. It's no problem to see, again, when you start with God, all things are possible. And, and that's really interesting, too, because if we have now, I didn't mention this earlier, I'm backtracking a little bit, but what's interesting is we, we go through the study of Genesis is that if you look at, at the earth being a young earth, some 6,000 years old, Genesis covers a, a period of time of about 2,000 years, which means that, you know, we have about um, 4,000 years, I think it is, of recorded Bible history. And so Genesis is covering a, a huge chunk of that, you know. A lot of what we see in our recorded Bible history is seen here in Genesis. So just a little side note there I, I didn't mention earlier. Um, let's see here. Day five of creation, verse 20. And we're not gonna get through all the chapter. Don't worry, you're looking at things right now going, what, man? We got, no, we're not gonna get through it all, but we're, we're doing pretty good. Verse 20. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So day five again, filling of the seas, the filling of the skies, all those things, the, the form that was given in day two, right? And, and it says, I like that, great, great sea creatures in verse 21, uh, and every living thing that moves were, were in the waters there. I mean, great sea creatures could possibly be a, a reference to, you know, Leviathan that's mentioned in uh, the book of Job, Job 41 verse one. Other large sea creatures that were in the Category of dinosaurs, perhaps, right? Again, what, what you have to see is that God is creating, you know, these animals, day, um, day five and day six. Animals that dinosaurs would have been a part of that. Dinosaurs living, walking with man. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. And so perhaps this great sea creature is a, a reference to this Leviathan here. Again, we don't need an old earth to explain the existence of dinosaurs. They're a part of God's Six days of creation. Again, the command is given for them to multiply. But notice the distinction again that God makes here when he says that they're to do so according to its kind. Let them multiply um, and, and let them, 
yeah, just abound according to their kind. You see, you can make an argument, perhaps, you know, you can, you don't have to get your knickers or not if somebody's talking about, you know, microevolution where we see variations within the kind, but we strongly refute macroevolution, which teaches, again, that there are changes from one kind to another. Within the dog kind, you'll see many variations, right? But you never see a dog becoming a cat. It's, it's outside of its kind. You just don't see that ever happening. So everything is according to its kind. God is sure to declare that. That's where, again, the, the ark begins to become a little less, you know, like, how did that all happen? Because no one wasn't called to take every type of dog, bring every kind. Bring two dogs. That's it. You don't have to bring a German shepherd and bring a dash and bring a, you know, poodle. No, just bring two dogs. Day six of creation. Verse 24, and then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so, and God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So listen, we're going to end right there because we're, we're leaving it off here at a, a very pivotal, pivot, pivotal point. Verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image. I'm, we're not going to get into that tonight here because there's a lot to cover on that. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot to cover on that. And so we're going to pick it up there next time in verse 26. But let me just end with this here. Warren Wiersbe says this. What does creation reveal about God? Well, creation reveals, first of all, his wisdom and power. Secondly, his glory. Thirdly, his power and Godhead. Number four, his love for insignificant man. Five, his providential care. To where our Lord, when on earth, even saw the gracious hand of the Father in the flowers and the fowls. As we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 25, we see God's greatness here in creation. And, and just to think the, the special relationship that he's intending for, for you and me with God. And that's what we're going to look at here next time, picking it up in verse 26. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can just meet tonight here. We can gather together where we can seek you and worship you. God, as we have seen so evidently here tonight, you're a God that deserves all of our worship. And we thank you that we get to worship the creator and not have to focus just on creation, Lord. We, we get to have a personal relationship with you. What a blessing and joy that is. And so I pray you'll continue to teach and instruct us and grow us as we go through this great book of Genesis. This book of beginnings may be insightful, may, may be equipping us, Lord, to live for you, to stand for you in this day that we find ourselves today. And so we ask and pray these things in your awesome and precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.